0: from Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. Today on the program, we'll be joined by a scientist who is searching the world for the blackest of black. Next, we'll chat with a researcher who is trying to get a handle on how superstitions spread. Does that sound like physics and anthropology? Well, it is, and it's not. It's biology, the evolutionary biologist and the theoretical biologist. That's Undisciplined, coming up next. This is Undisciplined, I'm Matthew LaPlante. Hey, let's play a little game. As long as you're not driving right now, and really, as long as you're not driving right now, close your eyes and then put your hands over them. What do you see? It's all pretty black, right? So what's blacker than that? The search for the very darkest color, the one that completely absorbs light, has romanced physicists for centuries. And a few years ago, researchers announced the creation of the darkest material on the planet, which absorbs 99.965% of all light. To get there required years of work by a team of nanotechnologists and chemical engineers and physicists. But to get nearly that close to absolute darkness, all nature needed was a spider. Joining us from Harvard University to talk about that spider and another life form that has evolved toward the very outer limits of the color spectrum is Cody McCoy. Her team's paper on the evolution of super black spots in nature was recently published in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B Biological Sciences. Hey, Cody, welcome to Undisciplined.
1: Hello. Thank you so much for having me on the show.
0: Let's keep playing this game. Close your eyes again. But this time, I want you to think of something you do that is superstitious. Do you hop over cracks in the sidewalk? Do you leave tail-side-up pennies on the ground? Do you cross your fingers, hold your breath, or knock on wood when you need a little extra luck? Where did these weird customs come from? Well, in a new analysis driven by game theory, two theoretical biologists have tried to answer that question, and joining me from the University of Pennsylvania to talk about how societies accumulate superstitions is Bryce Morski. His recent paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences demonstrates how groups of individuals, each starting with distinct belief systems, can evolve a coordinated set of behaviors. Bryce, thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Let's start today by talking about the color black. That, of course, is one of Pearl Jam's most beloved songs, Black, and I've got to admit, I've been trying to get an Eddie Vedder song on this show for a long time now. But Vedder, you know, he's pretty dark, and we're usually pretty upbeat show. Today, though, we're talking about Black, the color, and in particular, the life forms that have evolved to use that color in its very darkest states... So, Cody, McCoy, I wanted to start this conversation by just marveling in the evolutionary freak show that is the peacock spider. And obviously, we'd like to get to the color black, but that's not actually the first thing people notice on this thing. At least it's not the first thing I noticed on this amazing animal. Can you describe this creature?
1: Oh, absolutely. I love this question. Yeah, so peacock spiders, they're from Australia for the most part and they're brilliantly colored. They look like tiny living jewels. I think when most people picture spiders, you picture sort of an ugly, perhaps scary, small brown thing. Peacock spiders are given the name peacock because they're brilliantly colored, the males at least, and the males do elaborate, very long dances to impress and attract females. So they're a lot different than what we think of as a typical spider.
0: And the males of this species, like you say, they evolve sort of like a peacock to attract females using these dances and these displays of color. One of the ways they did this was to evolve really bright colors. But the other way, this is the central part of your research is that they evolve these really black spots. What do those black spots do in relationship to these other colors?
1: So the black spots are, we you know, hypothesize, an evolved optical illusion, which makes all the nearby bright colors look even brighter, sort of impossibly bright. And that's because... In order to see color, you have to be able to see color in all sorts of different lighting conditions. An apple should look red, whether you're looking at it in the bright sun or in the deep shade. Even though the wavelengths of light hitting your eye are very different in those two conditions. And our brain and eyes, and this is true for vertebrates and apparently also for jumping spiders like the peacock spiders, our eyes automatically discount the color based on how much light we think is illuminating it. So these really dark black patches right next to bright color essentially trick the eyes and brain into thinking that that color is that bright in the shade, you know, so it must be practically glowing because it looks like there's no light at all hitting the spider.
0: And spider's eyes work differently, quite, quite a bit differently than ours do. But we believe, you believe that there's a similar illusion at play in spider eyes as with us.
1: These guys have outstanding color vision, but like you point out, it's really different than our eyes. We have a flat retina at the back of our eye with a bunch of color-sensitive cells in a sort of mosaic pattern, whereas they have a kind of three-dimensional tiered retina. So light is traveling through all sorts of different pigments to be processed by their brain. And we haven't done any behavioral experiments with them uh, yet, at least. But I think it's safe to say that being able to see color, you still need that fundamental mechanism of color correction in light versus shade. So we need to test it. But I think despite the many years of evolutionary distance between our eyes and spider eyes, I do suspect the optical illusion would be present. Yeah.
0: So this illusion, to look at these spots, it's clear that they're really, really black. But you wanted to find out how black. How do you go about doing that. What is the instrumentation that you use to, to measure blackness?
1: So we used a microscope hooked up to a very fancy camera where it takes a picture of a tiny object and then you can click on any pixel in the picture and it gives you a reflectance spectrum. It tells you what percent of photons are reflected of each color of light and that tells you just how dark it is.
0: And what did you learn about how these spiders achieve this level of dark coloration? Because it's not just about pigment, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah. So we used a scanning electron microscope as well as computer software that allowed us to model how light interacts with the three-dimensional surface. So in that manner, we were able to you know, isolate the effect of tiny microstructures on color. And these spiders evolved not only dark pigment, the same as, you know, the types of pigment we have in our hair and in our skin, but they also evolved tiny structures that interfere with light's progress and essentially refract and focus light so that it becomes even darker than what you could get with just melanin pigment alone.
0: There are quite a few other life forms that have evolved to have super black coloration. Where do these spiders stack up. Are they the blackest of black?
1: It's hard to compare directly because everybody writes papers using different instrumentation and stuff like that. But I can say they're not quite as dark as the birds of paradise, but they are very dark nonetheless.
0: So let's talk about those birds of paradise because this is this other life form that you mention in your study. It's not an arachnid. It is a bird that has not only also evolved to use super black, but to use it in much the same way. How did you kind of like make that observation? It's like, oh, wait, they're doing the same thing with this color.
1: To be honest, my colleague, Rick Prom and I, we're talking one day after we had written that paper on birds of paradise, and he pulled up pictures of peacock spiders on his computer, and we both just sat there stunned like, wow, this is the bird of paradise of the spider world. And it really, really is. So that gave us the idea for the research. Because honestly, if you watch videos of birds of paradise and peacock spiders side by side, they look really similar. It's these males spending you know, hours dancing and shimmying to impress females with their bright colors and, as it turns out, with their ultra-dark, super-black patches.
0: Does it just completely wow you that these two animals, which diverged from a common ancestor like 600 million years ago, they've come up with the same trick for making bright colors look brighter and similar tricks for mating as well?
1: Absolutely. I have to say, I'm really impressed you have that number at the top of your head. (laughs) But yeah, it just boggles the mind. Convergent evolution tells you a lot about uh, the processes of natural and sexual selection for sure.
0: That's Cody McCoy, whose recent study on the super black spots of peacock spiders and birds of paradise was recently published in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B, Biological Sciences. Cody, can you stick around and listen as I chat with our next guest about something a little less dark?
1: I'd love to. Thank you.
0: Let's turn now to the subject of superstition. That is Stevie Wonder making the argument that when you believe in things that you don't understand, then you suffer. I mean, maybe suffering is a bit strong, but from an evolutionary point of view, superstitions don't seem to make a lot of sense. Knocking on wood, avoiding black cats, and carrying around rabbit's feet, these are all actions that require us to spend a little energy doing something that does not at first seem to have any sort of benefit to our actual survival. So, Bryce Morsky, let's start by talking about where these ideas come from in the first place. This all starts because people who are interacting and making decisions in social settings, well, they sometimes need a little help to do that. And sometimes when two people interact in a certain way, they'll follow these rules. And the rules seem to make sense. And so we all fall in line and adopt a norm. That's kind of usually how norms get started, Right.
2: Right. We need a norm to coordinate our behavior in interactions either between us or even amongst animals. So uh, we can design these conventions ourselves. But the question is, how can they evolve? That's what our paper uh, looked at.
0: And so over time, just well, sort of like by chance alone, there's sort of an evolutionary survival bias here. Enough people are successful when they use this irrational convention that others begin to follow them to model their success, right?
2: Right. So if my superstitions are consistent with yours and make us better off and coordinate our behavior, then they catch on in the population and they'll spread.
0: So to test this model, you you applied it to two games that are often used as playing fields for testing game theory, the game of chicken and the Nash bargaining game. What did you learn about the model when you applied it to these games?
2: Well, we were able to show that our model, our evolutionary uh, conception of this, could uh, lead to coordination in uh, both of these games. So in the game of chicken, for example, you can design a, um, a traffic light that works quite well. And We want to see if we can evolve towards that traffic light, which often we could, though not always, but often we could uh, evolve to a set of consistent norm. Yeah. In terms of the... Nash bargaining game, we had the same thing, too, where we would evolve to a fair distribution, uh, a fair sharing of the resource.
0: Do these evolutions take more time when the initially established norm, or before it becomes a norm, the initially established idea is more irrational than when it is irrational? Does does it take longer for people to, or for the system to adopt?
2: I guess there's different ways of uh, thinking about what's rational, what's irrational. Having a belief that a signal in the world or some superstition means you should behave a certain way or means that people should behave a certain way. If I see a black cat, it means I should be more cooperative, for example. That's completely irrational. However, if I believe that I should go through an intersection as if I, if I saw a green light and that you will stop, and if we both behave that way, then it's, it's rational to obey it. So there's just these two different ways of of thinking about rationality in this case. They definitely have to be rational in the latter case, in that uh, it will prevent car crashes. But they're certainly irrational in the former definition, of having some inherent meaning behind seeing a black cat or any other kind of superstition.
0: So what got you first interested in applying game theory to cultural evolution?
2: Yeah, well, we were interested in understanding um, collective identity originally and how that could emerge. And uh, we sort of stumbled across this idea of the uh, correlated equilibrium, which is a way of coordinating behavior. So in standard game theory, you have the Nash equilibrium, and the correlated equilibrium is a um, relaxation of that, I suppose you can think of it in some ways, or maybe generalization. And you can sometimes get better results than the national equilibrium would give you, a better social outcome. And we want to see how you could evolve towards that. And then what if there are different correlated equilibria? What if people have different uh, belief structures? What happens
0: then? In the process of doing this research and maybe as, as you've thought about the findings and looked around your own world, does it does it shift the way that you look at the things that you do and you look at the things that other people do, things in particular that you think maybe don't make a whole lot of sense on their face, but fit a part of the pattern?
2: Yeah, this is given us ideas for other research as well regarding how sort of seeming irrationality or ignorance can make people better off. The ignorance idea is sort of what's behind the correlated equilibrium. If you knew what everyone else was going to do, then the correlated equilibrium doesn't work. If you have an idea roughly of what it could do, distribution of what their behaviors are, then that's what leads to the correlated equilibrium. And there are other examples where ignorance can actually make us better off or irrationality can make us better off. So I'm interested in that and, and continuing that uh, line of research.
0: So the next step is to take this theory out for a spin in social experiments, right? Do you, do you have something in mind to do that?
2: We would like to. We would probably need some collaborators for that. We're both mathematicians, but uh, I think that would be interesting, yeah. I think that would be definitely interesting to see if we could uh, replicate these results. We have theorems, and, and, but we also have some simulations that show this. And it would be interesting to see with uh, human subjects if they can also pick up on these and develop their own social norms to, and that and they would evolve. For example, in the bargaining game, they could reach a fair distribution through this mechanism.
0: I, I just like the, the idea of like a room full of undergraduates like participating in the bargaining game and then somebody like opens a door and a black cat comes through, I think is... <laughs>
2: Yeah, it would have to be something like that, or uh, maybe on their screens, there's uh, something in the corner that doesn't seem like it's relevant, and the key is that this works when people don't know what the underlying correlation between all the events are. When you see something you have a superstition about, you don't know what the other person may see exactly, but they are all correlate in some complex way, and that's what can lead to the establishment of the storms and the coordination.
0: That's Bryce Morsky, whose work on the evolution of social norms in the absence of choreographers was recently published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Hey, Bryce, there's someone I'd like you to meet. Is that all right? Yes. So Bryce, this is evolutionary biologist Cody McCoy. And Cody, this is theoretical biologist Bryce Morsky. Nice
1: Bryce, it's too. great to meet you. Your work is really fascinating. <sighs> Thanks, yeah, just
0: too. So, guys, I, I think the thing that struck me as I was talking to you individually is that both of you are studying the ways in which the world pushes separate actors toward common actions. Cody, in your case, your work speaks to the forces that push both spiders and birds to come up with a common solution uh, to a problem. And Bryce, your work exposes the potential forces that push people who have no reason necessarily to share a belief to come to embrace a common norm. You're both from very different fields, but you're both biologists. So I guess what I wanted to ask you about is how these revelations about convergence shape your thinking about the world. I
1: thought, Matthew, your questions to Bryce illuminated a really interesting convergence. In a way, you know, people latching on to what at first appears to be sort of an arbitrary convention and that taking off and sweeping through a population – that's sort of similar to how you end up with birds of paradise and peacock spiders in the world. I mean, why would evolution produce a peacock spider? Why not a bunch of little brown spiders that can hide from predators? Some people think it has to do with similar mechanisms to what Bryce has researched. You know what I mean, Bryce? What do you, yeah, what do you think about the, con, the convergence there? Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Um...
2: Uh, Our original uh, conception was uh, mostly human interaction, but certainly the application would also be other species and how they uh, signal and and, and the like. I was kind of interested also in in your work, the sensory bias hypothesis,
1: and what do
2: you think led to the pre-existing sensory bias for these spiders?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So our our theory is that the pre-existing sensory bias is just that as your eyes receive the wavelengths of light bouncing off of colorful objects in the world, your perception is very different than what you know, than some perfect camera picture of the world. Your brain is doing all sorts of post processing to the image that it receives. So in this case, we're arguing that there is a really fundamental need to control for lighting conditions so that, you know, a female assessing a male mate can be sure to pick the male that's the brightest blue, even if he's purposely only displaying in the sun. You know what I mean? So in this case we think the super black Normally, black color is glossy. Like, think about human hair. Typically, it is kind of glossy or human skin is glossy. But this black in these animals is so dark that there's no white gleams. And the white gleams contain the information that allows us to sort of do the post-processing of our image of the world. So without that, it, it really throws off our image and c- can create all sorts of strange optical illusions. So that's, that's what I'm referring to when we use the phrase sensory bias, that the males evolved to a point where they can kind of uh, co-opt basic fundamental principles of the sensory system. I, I'm really curious, Bryce, are you working on further projects in the natural world or in the human world, like observing the same phenomenon of correlated equilibrium and um, the dynamics of a system without kind of an obvious like cost or benefit?
2: Not at the moment. The closest we we have to this is uh, an idea about Napster, actually, (laughs) and signaling of uh, how effective Napster and other file-sharing services are. There's this interesting paper I came across that describes those programs as charismatic code, that what they can do is they can lie about the degree of cooperation in the network. And this induces people to join the network and cooperate, assuming that a lot of people are conditional cooperators. So if you can lie about how cooperative one is, how much sharing there is, can induce more sharing and make the, the network actually survive. Otherwise, it would descend into no one sharing and, and the network would fall apart. I think we have a story for it and we have some simulations that show this, but I, I need to work out the, the math a little bit more.
1: That's incredibly cool. It reminds me of, do you know Goodert's Law? It's sort of a law in like the social sciences. No, no, it's, I don't. It's the idea is that when a measure becomes a target, it's no longer a good measure. So we, people often use it to talk about teaching to the test. You know, if you establish a high-stakes test, then schools do way better on the test, but the educational outcomes aren't actually getting that much better. And I now feel like, I see this everywhere in evolutionary biology and in what you just described with Napster, you know, the like perception of sharing is a good measure of how good the, the, I guess, the system is. So they managed to create, what was it you called it, charismatic code to make it seem like they were share- like more people are sharing. How does that code work?
2: So some of the examples were they would they, they broadcast, they have the majority of people share. Also, people who really believed in it were the people who were most vocal, and they would help new people in, in you know, how to set things up and whatnot. So it seemed like it had a really good community, people that shared a lot. And certainly all the people who are sharing are people who are being the most vocal. They would do other things like, uh, you know, the, your upload to download rate. It would look red if you hadn't shared enough and green if you're sharing quite a bit. They do all these, these sort of subtle things. Oh, the, uh, the average file shared per person. In fact, it's heavily skewed. You had a few people sharing an immense amount of files and a lot of people sharing nothing. If people knew that distribution, it might very well change their behavior. But they would just show them the average per per user all these little things to get people to cooperate to make the the community function
0: cody i was just thinking while bryce was talking like this idea of like information that is known getting in the way of a of a system or a process i was thinking about like these spiders they don't we think they don't know that their colors look brighter because of dark spots right i mean like if animals knew more about what they were doing would it Completely like throw a wrench in the mechanism of what they're doing?
1: Ooh, I like this question. I like this question. So, like, if they were humans trying to attract you know, a partner, how would that affect things? Is that kind of what you're getting
0: at? Well, I do. I mean, I guess Rational I think in terms fantasy. of like when, yeah, when humans choose partners, right? Like the more you know about a partner, like like if, let's say, let's say for a moment that that somebody that you're going on like a Tinder date with has just read a book on like how to attract a mate, right? Right. But you've read that same book, and you start seeing the things that that person is doing. You have the knowledge, and so it makes that person less attractive. So I guess I'm wondering if the, is is there a, is there a corollary in the animal world where it, when animals have more information about something that might not be rational, the animals start to make more rational decisions instead.
1: Oh, my gosh! yeah, so okay, so currently David Haig and I, that's my supervisor, are working on a project exactly along the lines you described. We think that mate choice is basically an arms race between the displaying sex, usually males, trying to like look as good as they can, regardless of their quality, and females, typically, again, sometimes the sexes are switched, and females trying to get as much honest information as they can to rationally assess male quality. So it's, it's like what you're saying, minus the conscious component. They still are gathering more and more information. Maybe they're improving their sensory perception to try to see who the healthier, bigger, stronger, faster, whatever males are. But it really is a sort of constant arms race between the tester and the person or spider uh, being tested, I think.
0: Bryce, do you have thoughts on on how that would work in in context of of the research that you've been doing?
2: Yeah, that's interesting. Um, in terms of our model, that would uh, uh, complicate it uh, more. It'd be another interesting uh, extension. We make this very big assumption that people will always uh, play the same norm, the norm they believe, and they can't tell what other what other people uh, what other people's norms are. Uh, they also can't um, because they're not they're not aware of that. They can't then adjust their behavior. So you, you believe black hats mean this, and you just assume that everyone else believes the same thing as well. And you can change your opinion as you adopt other people's norms. But once you add in this, uh, the idea that they, you know, I know that you think differently than me, so then how should that be change my behavior? And then you know the same thing, so maybe <laughs> how have you changed your behavior? i could add a lot of uh, uh, interesting complexity to the, to the, to the problem.
0: We are unfortunately just about out of time. Uh, Cody McCoy, thanks for joining us on Undiscipline today.
1: Thank you so much for having us, Matthew. This was super fun.
0: And Bryce Morsky, thank you.
2: Yeah, thank you very much. It was great.
0: undisciplined is a production of utah public radio and if you happen to live in utah you can listen to us every friday at 2 p.m if you miss us then you can listen to every episode of undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts we recorded today's episode from the studios of kcpw in salt lake city our producer is Alyssa roberts our theme music is little idea by benjamin to i'm matthew laplante thanks for listening go have big ideas